0: Hello, and welcome to the Chair's Corner from the Department of Medicine at the University of North Carolina. This is our new series where we explore topics related to autoimmune disease to help patients and their loved ones understand and manage their condition. And today, we're going to be talking about inflammatory bowel disease, also known as IBD. IBD describes at least two conditions. Crohn's disease and ulcerative colitis. And today, we welcome Dr. Millie Long, an associate professor of medicine in the Division of Gastroenterology at UNC. And she sees patients in our Inflammatory Bowel Disease Center. Dr. Long also serves on the Crohn's and Colitis Foundation of America as chair of the Professional Education Committee. So welcome, Millie Long. Thank you. What is inflammatory bowel disease? What does that word mean?
1: Inflammatory bowel disease refers to ongoing inflammation in the lining of the bowel. There are two main forms of inflammatory bowel disease, both Crohn's disease and ulcerative colitis. The difference between the two has to do with the location of where we find uh, the inflammation and the depth of the inflammation and the type of complications that can arise. Crohn's disease can affect anywhere, from the mouth to the anus, whereas ulcerative colitis is limited to the colon. However, both of these forms of inflammatory bowel disease are associated with significant ongoing symptoms that can be similar. Things like diarrhea, abdominal pain, fever, um, nausea. All of these GI symptoms together can be a a marker or a sign that there may be ongoing inflammation.
0: Now, there's another three-letter acronym that differs from IBD, or inflammatory bowel disease, and it has the acronym IBS. Mm -hmm. What does that stand for, and what are the
1: differences? Irritable bowel syndrome, or IBS, uh, is actually a completely different disorder. Irritable bowel syndrome is where the bowel is very sensitive and the bowel can therefore drive some degree of ongoing symptoms. And these symptoms can actually be fairly similar to that of inflammatory bowel disease. The difference is is that inflammatory bowel disease can cause damage to the lining of the bowel, actual true structural damage, whereas irritable bowel syndrome really refers more to a collection of symptoms. They're managed very differently in that for inflammatory bowel disease, you really need to focus on medicines that treat inflammation. Whereas for irritable bowel syndrome, we work on on ways to help to improve symptoms through perhaps dietary management or medications to help with uh, constipation or diarrhea, things like that. And so it's very important uh, if someone does have symptoms characteristic of one of these groups of disorders to see a physician, and that physician can help them to determine um, whether their symptoms may be coming from inflammation, which is treated quite differently.
0: Is there any other way of figuring this out by oneself? If you're a patient sitting there listening to this podcast, can you figure out yourself if you have irritable bowel syndrome or perhaps an inflammatory disorder?
1: You know, there are some what we call red flag symptoms, symptoms that really you should see a doctor for um, pretty quickly to help us to rule out this inflammation. If you have bleeding in your stool, that can be a sign of ulcerations in the lining of the bowel. And that is something that may be a marker for inflammation. If you have weight loss, that's a sign that you may not be absorbing well from what you're eating, and that could be a marker of inflammation. So particularly with those two symptoms, I would really encourage you to, to seek a medical provider. But that said, these conditions do overlap, and I think talking to your physician, even starting with your primary care physician, is absolutely appropriate. They can, they can help you to determine whether your symptoms need further evaluation.
0: And by blood, you don't mean just red blood. You no mean blo- different colors, right?
1: Exactly. So blood, as it goes through the the GI tract, can actually change colors. We as gastroenterologists will often ask the exact shade of that blood in your stool. Because if, for example, you are bleeding from an ulcer in your stomach, that, that your bowel movement might actually look black. Because as that blood is digested throughout the GI tract, it turns that color Whereas if the blood was arising from somewhere very low in the GI tract, like the rectum, that might be bright red blood, if someone had hemorrhoids, for example. And so, you know, the color helps us to determine where it might be coming from. But I would say regardless, if you have bleeding, it's worth talking to your doctor.
0: So many autoimmune diseases take a long time to get diagnosed. Many times patients jump from physician to physician, problem to problem, without necessarily coming up with a specific diagnosis. And I think that pertains to the inflammatory bowel diseases as well. How long does it take for a patient usually to figure out that there is an inflammation that is the cause of symptoms? What's the usual experience that patients have?
1: Well, I think you hit the nail right on the head in that often, unfortunately, many of my patients have had it take a long time. To come to that diagnosis, and one of the reasons is is that there are other much more common causes of having GI symptoms. You know, when someone first starts to have diarrhea, they may think it's something they ate. Um, they may think they've caught caught a bug. As symptoms progress, patients realize, well, maybe I should get this checked out. And then sometimes that initial evaluation may be unrevealing. They may be kind of reassured and they can be on a long journey until diagnosis. And my recommendation is is that, really, if someone has ongoing GI symptoms um, for over a month, including diarrhea, abdominal pain, these sort of symptoms, an evaluation is very important with their primary care doctor so that they can understand whether this this may be something more than just something they ate, or it could be a sensitivity. It certainly could be that, something like lactose intolerance, but these are things that their physician can help them sort through. I hate it when people have had symptoms for sometimes even years before coming to attention. And at that point, you know, they can have the complications from their inflammation as well.
0: So when the patient comes to see the doctor, in addition to describing the current mm-hmm. symptoms, mm-hmm. it's really also important to make sure that there's a record, even a written one, that describes all of the problems and for how long they've, they've had them.
1: Absolutely. That's very helpful to have a diary of symptoms and understand how long things have been going on, and, and, and other factors, too, to think about things like weight loss. And believe it or not, to think about other associated symptoms. Autoimmune diseases aren't always just one set of symptoms. For example, with inflammatory bowel disease, there's something called extraintestinal manifestations. And what this means by extraintestinal is it's outside the gut. So people that have inflammation in their bowel could also have symptoms of inflammation in their joints, or in their eyes, or in their mouths with oral ulcers, or even in their skin. And so inflammation can be present really throughout the body, and I think that being aware of all of their symptoms can be helpful in that communication and discussion with their doctor. Don't leave off something just because it's outside of the digestive system.
0: It's always useful for patients to come in with, again, a record, a written record of, here are all the things that are bothering me, clues physicians and other providers in that there's something systemic going on. There's been an incredible uh, explosion of therapy for inflammatory bowel disease, Uh, remarkable progress in all kinds of therapy, including what are now called biologic therapies. Mm -hmm. What kinds of therapies are available at this time?
1: What is wonderful is that we do have now a, a whole menu of options. even. 20, 30 years ago, we really didn't have very many effective therapies for the treatment of inflammatory bowel diseases. Often, patients were treated with recurrent courses of steroids. Uh, steroids are medications that have been around a long time. Such and, as prednisone. Such as prednisone. but the, And they do treat inflammation. Uh, they treat inflammation acutely. But the problem is is that the medications themselves, medicines like prednisone, when used over the long term, can have serious complications for the patients. And so they're really only meant to be a short-term reduction of inflammation. And now we have other medicines that can take over for that prednisone with better side effect profiles, with better uh, data on using over the long term. One of the things about inflammatory bowel diseases, like many other autoimmune conditions, is that these are chronic diseases, meaning that we don't yet have a cure uh, for inflammatory bowel disease. We have great medications that can help to put a patient in remission. And what I mean by remission is get get them symptom-free and get the inflammation healed up in their bowel, but it's important to recognize that they will need to continue to take medications to treat that and to prevent that inflammation from coming back. The biologic medications that you mentioned are one class of of drugs that we now have many different options of for the treatment of inflammatory bowel diseases. There are now three main classes of these medications, all of which treat uh, the inflammation in a different fashion. I often will tell patients, We have to think of a lot of different ways to treat the inflammation. Some of these medicines turn off inflammation at the systemic level, meaning they turn off inflammation all over the body, and that's why some of the medicines we use are also used in other autoimmune conditions that you'll be highlighting uh, on this this podcast series. We also have a newer class of biologic medications that's gut-specific, meaning it actually only targets the gut itself. And so there are a broad array of options, and I often will individually tailor the medicine choice based on the patient in front of me.
0: So the first class were drugs that target an inflammatory mediator called tumor necrosis factor, or TNF, and there are several options now to block There are several. And the, the gut-specific ones? Give me some examples of those.
1: Sure. So there's a new class of medications for the treatment of, of both Crohn's disease and ulcerative colitis called an anti-integrin therapy. One of these is vetalizumab. Uh, this is a gut-specific medication that blocks how inflammatory cells stick to the lining of the gut. And by blocking this gut-specific uh Integrin, called alpha-4 beta-7, we're able to selectively block inflammation in the gut without having the medicine treat inflammation elsewhere. And that can be very advantageous in scenarios where we don't want to have someone have more systemic, what we call immunosuppression, drop their uh, not only their inflammation, but suppress their immune system more systemically. And so this medicine can be gut-specific. We also have another class of medications now, not only just the TNF-alpha inhibitors, but we have a class of medicines that blocks uh, interleukin-12 and 23, which is another mechanism of systemic inflammation. And this medicine, ustekinumab or Stelara, is also approved in psoriatic arthritis, so an inflammatory joint and skin condition, but it's now been approved in Crohn's disease. And so what's very nice is that we now have several options. Not everyone responds to the first medication we try. And it's very important that we find the right medication for the right patient. And I think emphasizing to patients that there are all these options. So just if you failed one class of medications, there still may be other options for treatment that can be quite effective.
0: Most of these are infusions uh, that patients get at varying intervals. And all of them, or the vast majority of them, have untoward side effects. They can, by, by definition, they're suppressing one's normal response to inflammation. The question then comes, can one ever stop these medications? When it's, it's become easier to figure out how to start them, but when do you stop them for a patient, for example, with Crohn's disease? Or if you start one of these medicines, if you're a patient, does that mean you're going to take it for life?
1: That's a very common question, and the answer is, is for right now, we know that these medications are something called a monoclonal antibody, whereas if once we start it, if we are to stop it, we may not be able to come back to the same class of medication, as the patient may actually develop something called antibodies, where the medication will no longer be effective. So I often will talk to my patients and say, We want to find the right combination of medicines that gets your disease in remission, under control, and you feeling well. Once we do that, we address every six months, how are you? How are you tolerating this medication? How is your inflammation doing? And we judge the risks and the benefits of that therapy. Often, it's the benefit to keep going and to stay on that therapy uh, in order to, to keep that inflammation under control and to keep that patient doing well. But obviously, it's a matter of readjustment and reassessment, and as more and more therapies become available, it may be that there's an alternate therapy that may be better for that patient. But I do think right now, with Crohn's disease and ulcerative colitis, it's important to recognize that likely a medication will be required to keep that inflammation under control and keep that patient doing well.
0: It's also important for the patient to figure out what symptoms uh, they're having while on these medications. And keep a record of that, too, because that may prompt a trial of of another drug.
1: Absolutely. Uh, we ask our patients not only to document their symptoms, but we will also monitor other factors, things like level of levels of C-reactive protein, which is an inflammatory marker in their blood, or sometimes we even assess stool markers of inflammation. Ways for us to understand, is this therapy still working? Not only are they feeling well, but have there been any changes kind of in these biomarkers along the way? And sometimes we actually need to repeat that a colonoscopy or an endoscopy, a GI procedure, to assess how the inflammation is doing on their therapy to help us to make some of those decisions.
0: So are there supportive care or other things that patients can do themselves to help? What about diet? Is diet important or dietary supplements useful?
1: Diet can be very important. Uh, One example is, is that in the pediatric inflammatory bowel disease literature for Crohn's disease, in young kids... If, if they're started on something called an elemental diet, meaning the diet is only uh, kind of the purest form of supplements, that is, can be equivalent to steroids in terms of helping to induce or remission. So equivalent to prednisone, without having to take the prednisone.
0: But you have to be a young person for it's, that.
1: It's been shown to be, uh, for young children, that, that has been shown to be effective. And so we do think diet plays a role. The problem is, is that we have not been able to isolate one diet for all people with Crohn's disease or one diet for all people with ulcerative colitis. What we do in our practice is we often will have our patients work with a nutritionist and just as you mentioned about keeping a diary of symptoms, keeping a diary is very important as they're eating and and trying new foods to help to have an individualized um, list of foods that may help or worsen their symptoms. And so we work on an individualized approach. Now, I am excited in that there will be a new study that we will be taking a part of here at UNC that's sponsored by the Crohn's and Colitis Foundation of America, where for the first time, there'll be something called a randomized controlled trial of a dietary intervention, where we're going to be looking specifically at one diet called the specific carbohydrate diet. Some patients feel that this may make their symptoms better, but we don't necessarily have the evidence yet to understand what it does uh, to inflammation in the gut, and this study will be some, one way where we're trying to assess that. And so I do think as we're, just as we're getting more, more uh, therapeutics for the treatment of IBD, different medications, I think understanding the role diet will play is kind of the next frontier of how we're going to manage this disease
0: many patients with autoimmune diseases and many patients with inflammatory bowel disease have real trouble uh, adjusting to the disease, adjusting to the medication, adjusting to the idea, as any one of us would, that, oh my goodness, I'm started on medication and I'm going to be on this medication for a long, long time. In fact, for life, how does the patient's mental health uh play into this whole care pathway.
1: It's huge. As you mentioned, it can be so difficult to adjust to these diagnoses and to deal um with symptoms. And depression and anxiety can be common, and in fact, have been shown in numerous studies to actually exacerbate the underlying inflammatory bowel disease. And so we, as gastroenterologists, will often try to try to help patients from a mental health standpoint as well, because we recognize not only the impact on the patient in their day-to-day life from having the underlying depression, anxiety, and other mental health aspects, but that this can also complicate their course of disease. And so there are medications we can use to help with that. And I think equally as important, if not more important, is working with a psychologist. In fact, here in our UNC uh, Inflammatory Bowel Disease Center, we have a psychologist in our clinic who sees patients in the GI clinic because we recognize uh, the importance of, of mental health. And they often will work on relaxation techniques or something called cognitive behavioral therapy, ways to minimize pain sensitivity, and all of these things can be very important. And it it's really become a, a mission at the national level as well. Other IBD centers have moved to this model, and I would encourage any patient uh, with underlying Crohn's disease or all sort of colitis to reach out to their physician. Often their gastroenterologist is the physician they see the most, and talk about some of these mental health aspects because there are things we can do to help.
0: Many of these are mental health issues that are expected. Absolutely. Uh, they're not unusual. Patients have trouble adjusting to all sorts of of the things that they're forced to, to, to deal with. You mentioned that you're using all of these wonderful drugs, but that You can't look at a patient and say they're cured. You tell a patient they're in remission on therapy uh, and that there are other therapeutic vines in the jungle. But you can't look at them and say you're cured. In order to be able to do that, you're going to need to do, as a community, a lot of research to get that next step how do patients get involved in research activity? Because that's how your community has learned so much about this group of diseases.
1: I can't stress this enough that it this is a, the, a wonderful community of patients that when given the opportunity, many not only want to participate in research to try to help hopefully themselves, in terms of uh, ways to treat and improve from a Crohn's disease or ulcerative colitis perspective, but that the knowledge gained can help other patients as well. One example is a study that uh, we have here at UNC that's actually an international study. It's a study called CCFA Partners, or Crohn's and Colitis Foundation of America Partners. And this is an online study where anyone across the country with inflammatory bowel disease can join. And they fill out surveys every six months. It includes information about their disease, maybe prior surgeries, current medications, but it also includes information about some of these other aspects that we're mentioning, something we call patient-reported outcomes, things like their mood, things like if they're able to get out of the house and do the things they want to do, aspects about fatigue pain. You know, all of these factors play a huge role in the course of uh, inflammatory bowel disease, and we need to better understand how our treatments uh, are targeting how the patient is living as a whole. And that's the focus of this study. What I also love about this study is that patients are really citizen scientists. They log on to our community and propose research questions. And then we take those research questions and we... We'll we'll go from there, often including the patient, and try to answer these important questions. One of the studies I mentioned earlier, a diet study um, that is being done um, through the Crohn's and Colitis Foundation of America, was actually an idea that was proposed by a patient through this platform. And that patient is working with us to answer this important question that we've now been able to um, receive funding for and are moving forward nationally. And so I would encourage patients to visit a website, ccfapartners.com. Dot org. And at this site, they'll be uh, given instructions on how to join, and they can do so from the comfort of their home, just over any internet connection. And I think it's an important project moving forward in that it truly pairs patients and researchers and clinicians together to try to answer some of these important questions about what it's like to live with inflammatory bowel disease and how we as a community can work to- together to improve outcomes.
0: So the Crohn's and Colitis Foundation is a good source also for patient information. Where else should patients turn?
1: Patients, the the CCFA, as you mentioned, is a wonderful resource. Often uh, their own physician will have uh, resources, for example, here at UNC on our website. If you go online uh, to the UNC IBD website, for example, we have links to educational resources as well. There are also other national resources. There is an ostomy foundation resource for people that have an ostomy bag that can be wonderful. And there are links to all of these sites through both the CCFA and through UNC.
0: Thank you so much, uh, Dr. Long, and thanks to our listeners. If you enjoy this series, you can subscribe to The Chairs Corner on iTunes or like us on Facebook. Thanks so much for listening.